My name is Zard. I'm an alcoholic. God, isn't it great to be sober? January the 30th of 1975, I stumbled into A and I haven't had to leave yet. I didn't believe it was great to be sober when I first came here. I was sober about two weeks and a guy got behind the podium and he said that and I thought, my, is he confused? A couple of weeks later and all we had, I came in in Ashland, Ohio. It was a real famous group. There were three people left in the group and they were thinking of closing it up until I came along. And a couple of weeks later, a guy came up and he said, sobriety is the most important thing in my life. And I said, give me a break. I said, my family, my country, my job. And I really didn't have any of those things anyhow. But I stand before you tonight, and I'm going to tell you I am a miracle, and I know what some of you are thinking. If that's a miracle, I wonder what a mistake looks like. <laughs> Big book tells me I'm supposed to tell you generally, or in a general way, what I was like, what happened, what I'm like. Now I'm going to try to do that, but I can't do that without telling you something about them. And them, of course, are the people that I, I claim to love the most. And for the people who are here from Al-Anon, and the children and the adult children of alcoholics. I believe from the bottom of my heart that you're the strongest, most courageous people in the world. You have survived. You have survived living with someone like me. And I'm always happy to have a militant in the crowd. Put, 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 put the flag down. Uh, I was born with a mole on the side of my face, and at a very early age, I had considered myself disfigured. And when people talked to me, I thought they were talking at my mole. And I withdrew. And I had a terribly shy problem. And when I was about 10 years old, after coming through the Depression, I vowed that I would never be poor, because I watched my parents sit at the table and cry because they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And I went to a Jimmy Cagney film, and you young people don't know who he was, and nobody heard what he said in that film, but I heard that one line, the big take it away from the little and the smart take it away from the big. And I vowed I was going to be smart. So I had a bad attitude before I picked up a drink six years later. Some of the guys came by and they said, let's go out and have a couple of drinks at the cheat spot. And everybody had a couple of drinks and Art got drunk. But somewhere before I got drunk, my mole disappeared. And I was a good-looking kid. And I was strong. And I was articulate. And I was one of the guys. And I had never been one of the guys. And then I finished high school and I never had too many problems with drinking through high school because it wasn't available. But it was funny because whenever I drank, I got drunk. I don't think we realize we're alcoholic until something severe happens. But a lot of severe things had to happen before I realized it. And I got out of high school, and back then, this was 1944, the year Karen was born. And uh, I got out of high school in 1944, and back then, Mom and Dad had a lot of power on the scene. And my folks said, you have a choice. You can become a doctor, a lawyer, or a priest. When I'm going through high school, I noticed some changes. I noticed that girls look different than boys. And I didn't think the Catholic Church was ready for a priest that fooled around. 
so I, t I decided not to be a priest. I didn't think I talked good enough to be a lawyer, so I went off to John Carroll University to become a doctor. And things were going very well in my life because I was away from home and I was able to drink. And at the end of my first semester, I found out there were two marvelous things going on in my life. I was flunking all my courses, and I had promised my hand in marriage to two girls. I did the marvelous thing that we are so capable of doing. I ran. I joined the Navy, ours, and I went off to World War II, which incidentally I didn't start and I didn't want to finish. I really didn't want any part of World War II or the Navy. I hated the Navy. And, and I was there and I had a very, very tumultuous time with the Navy and they had a worse time with me. They had rules and I didn't do well with rules. It's amazing because I, I, had, I had never done well with rules. I know none of you have ever had that problem. And they give us a win pass, and I would go off, and I would get drunk on Saturday, and they would put me on the bus, and they would send me back to the base. And uh, when I came to, I did the same thing that all of us try to do. I wanted to act normal, and I would get up on Sunday morning, and I would go to church, and it wouldn't matter which church I went to. And I could hear voices. Some of you look like you've heard voices. And I could hear voices in the background saying, look at that wonderful young man going to church. And these other bums are in town drinking and chasing women. Now, nobody ever said that, but I heard it. And I woke up one Sunday morning, and I was in San Bernardino, California, and it was a Sunday, and it was the first Sunday I'd ever made it off the base. And the birds were singing, and the sun was shining. And I asked the jailer how I got there. And he said, the state of California is rather upset with you. You tried to kill somebody last night. And the first thought in my mind is, how do I get out of this? Apparently, a lady was watering her lawn, and so was I. And she took offense to it and made a comment, and I was going to strangle her. And I never once gave a thought to, I wonder how she felt. I wonder how her family felt. I wonder if they had to move. I wonder what it did to the rest of her life. I really wonder what happened. You see, I didn't care. I was young. I was an alcoholic. I had no feeling for anybody else. Well, the Navy offered me a discharge, and it was real comical because this was going to be a, an honorable discharge uh, after my court-martial. And uh, I hated the Navy. Now, if this isn't alcoholic, nothing is. And the man came in and said, we're going to offer you a discharge. And I said, what if I don't want it? And he said, you better take it. So I came back home and I went to John Carroll University again to become a doctor. And I spent three and a half years stealing exams so that I could pass them. And I was a daily drunk by this time. And they were ready to throw me out for the second time because of grades. But just before they threw me out, I found God. She was five foot four. Proportioned, articulate, a queen. And we began to date, and eventually we married. Last Wednesday, we celebrated 48 years, living proof that some women will sleep with anybody. And when I talk about regard for somebody and respect for somebody, and as I unfold my story, you'll find out why.
I have that regard and why I have that respect. So anyhow, so far in life, I had played life, I had played school, I had played college, I had played Navy, now I'm going to play marriage. And being an alcoholic, and of course we were two young kids, they had the best man sleep with me the night before the wedding. God, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> because they wanted me sober for the ceremony. You see, I wasn't going to drink after we got married. And she was walking down the aisle, she was very radiant, and she was anticipating entering a relationship where she was going to get all of the things that I'd promised her, a good husband, a good father, a provider, somebody to walk through life with, over good times and bad, somebody you could respect, and somebody you could live out your years with, and possibly have children and raise them the way they're supposed to be raised. And I believe in my heart I was looking for a deaf, dumb sex maniac that owned a bar. And you see, nothing measured up for me because if it measured up, I simply changed the rules. I didn't fit and nobody measured up. So we started to, to play marriage. And after about three years, we had my oldest child. As a matter of fact, seven children came out of the marriage living proof the rhythm system really doesn't work. <laughs> or we were using the wrong beat. <laughs> and my first child was born, and of course by this time I was coming home drunk every day as I was prone to do, and I would come home and I'd pick Becky up and I'd take her into the bedroom and I would rock her and I would sing to her. And thoughts would dance through my head of the pretty little patent leather shoes and the dresses, the parties, the games we were going to play, the zoos we were going to visit, the picnics, later on the fine schooling she was going to get. I was going to participate in her life because I loved her and she was going to love me. And I continued to drink. Four years later, I came home one night as I was prone to do, sometimes I'd eat and sometimes I'd flop into the bed, seeking the relief that passing out or falling asleep would give me. The four-year-old child came and stood at the foot of my bed, and these are the words I heard. He said, Daddy, I don't like it when you sleep all the time. You never play with me. Words that I will take to my grave, words that I will never forget. And I got up the next morning and I went to work and I came home after work. And for five years we played. And for five years we played nice. You know, and I didn't have all of the things that I love today. I didn't have drunks like you in rooms like this. I didn't have a big book. I didn't have AA. I didn't even know I was an alcoholic. I had no sponsor. I had no one to tell me that big things I could handle with these, but little things that eat me up and resentments that get me drunk. And after five years, it was a series of little piddly things that ate me up. And I said those famous words, I'll show them, I'll get drunk. And I left, and I went down to the corner, and I had a couple of beers, and everything was wonderful. And I came home, and within two weeks, I was right back where I'd started. Now, through all this five years, I had done real well in business. I was a wholesale bakery driver, and uh, 
I had gotten a new territory, and I went out there, and we were like one big happy family. I really didn't have customers. I had friends. And I would take the kids out there, and, and, and after working hours, and we'd visit, and God, life was good. And here I come drunk. And we talk about the Alanons being enablers. Everybody in my life was an enabler. And I'd come into their places drunk, and they'd say, it's okay, it's art. It's fine, it's art. Maybe there's something wrong with him today. He'll be okay tomorrow. And it got real expensive real quick, and I found a way to separate my company from just enough money to keep me in a fifth of whiskey and a case of beer a day. And over a period of time, it grew into a lot of money over five years. It was more money than I care to tell you about. And I had a kid that was involved in, in this with me. And it was one of these deals that nobody ever knew anything about it. And I hated him. He lived two blocks from me, and his wife wore diamonds, and she drove a Cadillac, and she had furs, and they had a big boat. And we had nothing. And there were times after we had those seven children that I'd come in the house, and I'd say, here's $10. This is your lunch money, your food money, your shoe money, your clothing money. This is your money for the week because I drank the rest of it up. I think it was about 1970. Came home one day and Ruth said, we have to talk. And I said, you know, I know what the problem is. I drink too much. I'll go to AA. And I did. And I walked into the Ashland Tuesday night group and there were 70 people in the room and I took an immediate dislike to every one of them. And nobody talked to me, and I didn't talk to them. And I came home after that. And she said, how was the meeting? And I said, I really wasn't impressed. I'll give them one more chance. So I went back the next Tuesday night, and somebody dared talk to me. And then I met that man in a grocery store a week later, and they had a big conference going on in Cleveland, Ohio, and he said, you must go to that. And I said, I, I can't go. We didn't have enough money. I liked when they got out of Ashland. And he said, you have to go. And I said, no, I don't have to go. And he said, you have to go. And I don't have to do anything. So I got drunk for the next five years, and he stayed sober. But that five years were, was relatively interesting because I was like so many people in the, in the program. You know, I'm, I'm a dishwater uh, alcoholic. There's nothing unusual about me. I was active in the church, counted the collection after the 11 o'clock mass. Read the epistle, sang in the choir. President of the PTA. Police chief was a friend of mine, bold with the highway patrol. And I was drunk all the time. And yet through that five years, a lot of interesting things happened. You know, dinner time is, is so special in most homes. It's a time when you can sit around and chat. What'd you do in school today? Do you have any homework? What do you want to be when you grow up? What are you going to do over the weekend? How about if we have a picnic? Teach the children to be ladies and gentlemen. This is what they tried to do to me. And it wasn't that way at our house. On a continuing basis, when I bothered to come home, it was, eat that crap. To one, you're eating too slow. To another, you're eating too fast. You're stupid. You'll always be stupid. You're never going to amount to anything. Why don't you leave home? I hate your guts. 
And if things weren't going my way, I'd pound my fist on the table and shout, Son of a... And watch seven little kids freeze. And I watched their eyes. And I watched the love that their mother said they should have for me because I was their father. And I watched their eyes and the love changed to confusion, to fear, to rage. And I continued to drink. I was sitting in the house one Sunday and one of the local grocery stores called and this is what I was like. Not caring about anybody else. Not wondering why they cried in their beds at night. One of the grocery stores calls that we have your son here. He stole a pack of cigarettes. For you smokers, eat your hearts out. They were about 50 cents at that time. And I said, I'll be right down. You see, I was always the big shot. And I walked into the grocery store, and I said, how much were the cigarettes? And he told me, and I gave him a dollar and said, keep the change, and I had stole that dollar that morning. I took my son outside, and I beat him up. I took him home. Cussed and swore all the way home. He ran up to his room, and I caught him at the landing, and I started punching him. I stopped. threw my arms around him and I said I'm doing it because I love you I don't want you to turn out like me and I continued to drink and life got real bad and the day I walked in Alcoholics Anonymous as bad as life was I thought I was okay but I got up in the morning of January the 30th 1975 No one in the room. And I heard a voice. And that voice said, Today is the last day that you have to do something about your drinking. And I swear, I heard that voice. Now, there was only one man in town smarter than me. You've all been there. Our doctor. And I called him up. His nurse answered the phone. She said, this is Winona. What do you want? I said, I'd like to talk to Jack. She says, what about? And I said, I'd like to talk to Jack, Winona. And she said, yes, but what about? And I said, Winona, I don't have syphilis, but I would like to talk to Jack. So she made an appointment for me at 10 o'clock in the morning. By 10 o'clock, I should have been shaken to pieces, and I was sitting there with a calm that I had not had in years. And truth will win every time. He came in. He said, what seems to be your problem? I said, I drink too much. He said, how much do you drink? I said, I'm drunk all the time. He said, I can't help you. You'll have to go to AA. Hell, I knew that. So I went to AA. It was a Thursday night. I met a guy there that I drank with. We'd bowl together. And I said, my God, Wayne, I thought you died. And he said, no, I came to AA. And I said, what made you come to AA? He said, I used to watch you. And I said, if I ever got that bad, I'd come to AA. Now, on the way out, Nashville was a small town. It was 18,000 people. The town hooker was a virgin. And uh, on the way out, they, they had a guy. Drunks are funny people. Now, this guy was about five foot four, weighed 135 pounds, and they called him Tubby. And Tubby said, 
there's a meeting in Mansfield on Saturday night. Maybe you and Ruth would like to go. And I said, how do you know Ruth? And never, never entered my mind that people would know anybody. And I went home, and, and I'm going to tell you something about this program. Keep your eye peeled. Keep your eye peeled for the miracles that are happening in your life. Keep, keep your eye peeled for what's going on in your life that you have no control over that's a real positive thing. And I went home, and I was basking in the sunshine that I was sober one day. God, what an accomplishment. And I walked in the house, and I said to my wife, Rita, no, Ruth, Ruth, I knew it started with an R. I said, there's a meeting in Mansfield on Saturday night. Would you like to go? And she said, yes. And I said, my God, maybe those people know something. And it's funny because I got up the next morning, and only an alcoholic would say I deserve a reward. So I didn't go right into the plant. I was a general or a regional sales manager. And uh, I'm going to have a cup of coffee and read the paper. I'm just going to baby myself. And that son that I beat up, they had not talked to me for three years. Came in, started to talk to me. Nobody knew I went to AA. There's no reason, Ruth, to tell anybody I went to a meeting. Nobody had any reason to believe I was going to change. Nobody had any, any reason to believe that I was going to stay sober. And I began to believe that maybe what happens in these rooms comes from a power greater than we're capable of having. So up until this time, I'm playing Navy, I'm playing college, I'm playing marriage, I'm playing father, and I'm going to play AA. And I watched the people in AA. Now, all we had in Ohio was speaker meetings, one-hour speaker meetings. My sponsor sat me in the front row, front seat. I'd look up and grin at the speaker, and everybody thought I had my stuff together. Furthest thing from the truth. So I was going to be little Mr. A of 1995 in Ohio, and I had to watch and see how I could do that. Well, it wasn't working real well. And at my second meeting, a crippled lady, the Ashland Tuesday night group had gotten down to three people, and they were thinking of closing up, as I told you earlier, and this crippled lady was a member of the group. Marge Wasson was her name. And she said, young man, she said, if you want to make in this program, you're going to have to have a sponsor. And I said, what the heck is a sponsor? She says, it's somebody that knows the program, somebody that can lead you through the steps, somebody that can assist you when you're having a problem, and somebody that will set an example that you might want to follow. And I said, I'm going to look around and find me one of them. She said, no, you got one. <laughs> this started a love affair that, that still goes on. After 21 years, she's still my sponsor. She made a mistake. She said, anytime you're having a problem, feel free to come up to my house. The next morning at 10 o'clock, I was up at her house. Every morning thereafter for six months, I was up at her house. And we had problems. And so she would tell me stories. And I, I forgot to tell you that I had minimal brain damage when I came in. I'd lost the ability to read. Uh, that came back. Uh, and she would tell me stories because she ran with Al Anderson and Bill and Bob and some of the early people about hopeless alcoholics whose lives were down the tubes, who had no hope, who had no reason to live. And they came to AA, and because they did the 12 steps, and they worked them to the best of their ability, they were whole and useful and free. 
I want to be like them. And I found out real early on what AA is all about. I was sober about three months, and my oldest son was killed in an accident. And my family had distanced themselves from me, and, and I think probably the, the reverse of that's true. I had distanced myself from them. And we were talking about going to the funeral home, and, and I thought to myself, why should I go? Nobody will know me. The people that come in don't want to see me. But I should probably go because the children would be there and maybe I should show up. And we went in. About quarter after seven, dozens and dozens of drunks from all over northern Ohio filed through. And they said the nice things that you're supposed to say and for some reason God put sponsor last. And she said words, words that I'll never forget. Put her arms around me. She said, we're not here because we think you'll drink. We're here because we love you. I thought, my God, they have confidence in me. They believe in me. Maybe I should believe in myself. Maybe there's more to AA than I think there is. She doesn't even remember saying those things, but I'll never forget it. You see, the reason we're here in this room tonight, if you're new, is not because we think you'll drink. We're here because we love you. God, don't forget that. Well, we had a problem. I was doing well in AA, just ask me. And I would go to my sponsors and I would say things like, nobody loves me. And she would say things like, why should they? <laughs> and I would say, but you don't understand. And she'd say, no, you don't understand. And, and we managed to get me through the steps to the best of my ability. And I've got to tell you, the longer you're here, the more ability you're going to have. And so I did a real schlocky steps pr process. And uh, I guess I was sober about two years, and uh, I was at Marge's one day, and she said, uh, what kind of a program do you think that you're working? And I said, I think it's pretty cool. And she said, that's real strange. She said, the people in AA think your horse is ass. <laughs> and, of course, I did what we do. I stormed out of the house. And, and then I called her back later, and, and, and I said, what did you mean by that? She said, Art, this is a spiritual program, and we're worried about you. I said, why would you worry about me? I'm wonderful. Why, why would you fool with perfection? Well, a lot of comical things happened in my sobriety, and one of them is that I found God, and I found a little bit of peace of mind, and I found patience and tolerance and, and love and understanding in a pair of shoes. I went to my sponsors one day. She only lived four blocks away, incidentally. I stormed into the house and I says, they're at it again. They're back there weeping, wailing, and gnashing their teeth. And she says, what is it this time? Those always this time. I said, well, somebody left a pair of shoes where they didn't belong. I bounced them off her head. I was ready to hit her. And I said, the older kids got involved. Ruth got involved. I said, God, it's a mess back there. And she didn't raise her voice. She says, starting today, we're going to pick up the shoes, the clothing, the dishes, whatever it is. And we're going to put them where they belong and we're not going to tell anybody. And I said, my God, how will they learn discipline? 
She said, they don't need discipline, you do. <laughs> do you think you can handle this art? Pick it up, put it away, keep your mouth shut, don't tell anybody. Do you think you can do that? Do you think you can remember all that? Uh, yeah. She said, while you're at it, I want you to listen for the sounds in your home. I said, what do you mean by that? She said, well, your mouth is going to be shut anyhow. Listen for the sounds in your home. So I started to pick the stuff up and throw it out in the snow. And I told Marge, and she said, it won't work. Pick it up, put it away, keep your mouth shut, listen. So I, I started to do that, and I'd all but forgotten about it. And uh, it was about a month or six weeks later, and I was up at her house one day, and she said, by the way, how are we coming with the picking up? And I said, I'm doing a marvelous job, and they're very untidy people. <laughs> and she said, that's wonderful. Keep it up. And I said, wait a minute. I said, you told me to listen for the sounds in your home, in my home, and I haven't heard anything. She said, let me ask you something. Have you heard the sound of anybody being cussed out? And I said, no. Have you heard the sound of anybody being hit? I said, no. Have you heard the sound of anybody crying? And I said, no. She said, that's what your home is supposed to sound like. This is a spiritual program, and you're not getting it. You can participate in their lives, or you can continue to try to control them. Alcoholics Anonymous is not an alibi. It's a disease. Do you want to participate in their lives? Or do you want to continue to control them? Everybody in the world, Art, has got wants and dreams, hopes and desires. Just because you don't agree with them doesn't mean that they're not important to them. What are you going to do? That was my low. That was as low as I got in this program. I said, what can I do? She said, you'll have to pray that you be relieved of your anger. And I said, businessmen, don't pray. She said, I know one who will or he'll get drunk. And I get up in the morning and I say, God, don't let me hurt anybody today and mean that from the bottom of my heart. And in five minutes sometimes I'd be after somebody. And I said that prayer one morning, God, don't let me hurt anybody today. And I thought, my God, what a fool you are. If you don't want to hurt anybody, why don't you quit hurting them? And that was a revelation. That was a revelation. And it was a turning point for me. And I began to participate in their lives. I had a no syndrome. Let's have a picnic. No. Let's go to the zoo. No. Let's take a walk. No. And I began to yes and yes and yes. And all of a sudden, things began to happen. I was up at Marge's one day, and she said, Do you love your children? And I said, You know I do. Did you ever tell them? Well, I couldn't do that, especially the boys. Because I came from a German Catholic home. If they put food on the table, you're supposed to figure out they liked you. She said, oh, I guess we're going to wait until they lower the coffin in the ground. And they'll all stand around and look down the hole, and somebody will finally say, do you think he ever cared? She said, you have to tell him now. She got me all pumped up on love, baby. So I went four blocks to my house and walked in the house. There stood my 23-year-old son. I said, I love you. He said, up yours, and walked away. 
I went right back to Marches. I said, it don't work. <laughs> now, if you got a sponsor, you're going to get a lot of comedy in your life because she said, how many times did we do it? And I said, we did it once. She said, well, we are going to do it over and over and over again and then act like you love them. talking to a guy one day. This isn't in the big book, but it worked in my life. He said, you know, you've got a wonderful family. And I said, gee, thanks. He says, except when you're home. <laughs> he said, you need to get a dog. I said, I want a dog. He said, if you don't get a dog, you're going to get drunk. I said, where does it say that in the big book? He said, it doesn't. But if you don't get a dog, you're going to get drunk. He said, I've been in your house. He said, it could be a home, but it's a house. He said, you just sit and watch and wait for somebody to do something and say something you don't like so you can go off on a tangent. He said, I want you to get a dog, and every time somebody says or does something you don't like, I want you to say, excuse me, I think the dog has to go outside. <laughs> you tell that dog your problems, and when you calm down, you come back in the house. So being an alcoholic, I went out, I got a 95-pound sheepdog. Everybody thought that dog had bad kidneys. <laughs> and that dog saved my life. And I would go outside and I'd put my arm around that dog and I'd say, Did you hear what that witch said? And he'd be going like this, you know. <laughs> and I talked to that dog and that dog licked my face and loved me to death and calmed me down. I'd go back inside and I'd say, You know, I'd put it in proportion to what it was. Is it that important? What's it going to do the rest of my life? And basically, is this any of my business? If it's not my business, stay out of it. If it's not that important, don't make a big deal out of it. And so I did, I did the dog. The day that dog died, I, I drove uh, 120 miles to get another sheepdog. Uh, that's how much stock I had in that dog. We began to make amends, and it was a slow process. And I began to change my life. And the more I changed, the more I noticed they changed. You see, they could talk, to, they could talk with me instead of at me. And I could ask them a question. And they would give me the truth. Rather than stand there and try to figure out what they had to say in order to save their hide. And it was marvelous. And I had eight years sobriety and I was still an idiot. And my son's wife called. And she said, I'm going to divorce your son because he did some things that he shouldn't have done. And he's an alcoholic. Maybe Dad would like to talk to him. And I said, yeah, I'll talk to him. I'll give him a call. So I hung up the phone and I said, Ruth, I said, Debbie wants me to call Russ. And I told her the story. She said, what are you going to say to him? He hates you. Somewhere... Between the kitchen and the bedroom, I turned the results over to God. And I dialed the phone. And he answered. And I said, very simply, this is Dad. I just wanted to know what was going on in your life. And he spilled everything out to me. And I said, we don't have that kind of relationship. And I live 1,100 miles away. I can't help you. But I know a young man who can. And he came into the program. And he was approaching his first birthday, and I went up to Ohio to visit him. And I knocked on the door, 
And he burst through the door and he threw his arms around me, told me he loved me and scared the hell out of me. And we went inside and if you think you're, you know, a little bit of an ego problem, uh, I had it. And he said, Dad, the people in AA told me that if I carried resentments that I'd get drunk. And That's right, son. And they said, I need to talk about my anger. Is that okay with you? And there's anything I can do to help. He said, do you remember the night you stabbed me? I had not. I wondered why he hated me. From there, he said, Dad, I didn't have a father to love. You remember when I got that big uh, German Shepherd dog? He said, I got that dog. And he told me about things I'd done to him and the dog. I didn't think that I was capable of being as inhuman and insensitive. Now, we talked for a long time. And we went out on the porch when I was leaving. And he put his arms around me. And for the first time in that young man's 22 years, he was my son. I was his father. You get to the power of the program. Page 80 something in the big book. It says, why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered and been given the power to help others. My God! What a wonderful gift to be able to do that. We went through about maybe a year of poor dad. Maybe this time, maybe something good will happen. Maybe we'll have money. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And then we went through about five years of let's get even with the son of a pup. And, and that's when I had to learn my program. I had to learn, and, and the lady today that told the story of the dead duck, uh, the duck died, didn't he? Uh, that it, it's a slow process, and, and it takes forever, and the burden of it is all mine. It's not what you do to me, it's what I do to you. I found out that love isn't what are you going to do for me, it's what can I do for you. I found out that love isn't control and love isn't ownership. And the payoff for me came that eight and a half years of sobriety when I was able to pull my arms around my last child and tell her I loved her. And she didn't pull away and say, don't touch me, as she had for 20 years. You see, they had hate. Anger, fear, resentment, guilt. And they had no program. They had no program. I was the only program that they saw. And my sponsor said that was a tragedy. I was all they could see in program. And thank God that there were people in AA who had the guts to say, Art, that's not the way we do it. You know, my sponsor used to say, you know, in AA, we don't talk to our wives the way you talk to Ruth. In AA, we don't treat our children the way you treat your children. And I had no idea as to what they were talking about. And little by little, I began to find out that truth, as it comes out of the big book, will set me free and will allow me to live and work and play with others in a positive way so that nobody has to be hurt. It's been a long time since one of my children has cried because of me.
It's been a long time since I've raised my hand in violence. Nothing that I have done has done that. That is the grace of God and the ability that I have to pick that grace up and use it and do the things I'm supposed to do. I was sober three months, and my sponsor said, you need to sponsor somebody. Not three months, I was carrying the disease, okay? And so this woman came into AA, and she was as crazy as I was. And, and, and uh, if you're early in sobriety, don't give me that crap that you can't sponsor anybody because you don't know nothing. Uh, and uh, she said, I, I would like to have you sponsor Irene. And Irene said, I would like to have you sponsor me. And we're both Catholics, and I don't know what that means, but uh, I guess we had something in common other than alcoholism. And, and I would, she would call me every day, and this is alcoholic. And she would complain about her husband and her children, and nobody loved her. And I would say, well, now, Irene, what I would like to have you do is read the fifth chapter and then call me back. And after about a hundred days of this, she called one day, and she still complained. Same story, second verse, uh, complaining about Joe and the kids. And I said, Irene, what I'd like to have you do is read the fifth chapter and call me back. And she said, she used dirty words. And, and she said, you blah, 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 you've told me that for three months now, and I've read it every day for three months now, and I don't know where the hell the answer is. And I said, Irene, I don't know where the answer is, but it's in there somewhere. <laughs> I've got 21 years and six months. Irene's got 21 years and three months. Uh, simply because we had a willingness to come back, and we had a willingness to learn, and we had a willingness to approach something called truth. And that's what I was like. You see, I didn't care about anybody or anything. And because of you people, I can, I, can, I can be kind to people. And I can care about people. And then we get to what are we like now? You know. And, and we can never end. We can never end what happened. Because it continues to happen for the rest of your life. What am I like now? I would lie to you. I would tell you, gee, I'm just a delightful person. And... Uh, I would say if you really want to know what I'm like now, ask Ruth, ask the children, ask the people whose lives I touch on a daily basis, ask the people who wait, for, wait on me in the grocery stores. They could tell you what I'm like now. And that's the barometer that I have to use. This program has given me friends. It's given me the people that I've sponsored. And, and I really don't sponsor people. I'm probably the world's worst sponsor. Uh, because they were gentle with me and I tend to be gentle with people. You see, when I sponsor somebody and, and you sponsor the way you want to, it's, it's, everything is unique in this, you know, in this, in, in this uh, program. You do it the way that you're comfortable and the way that works for you. But when I sponsor people, I'm fooling around with your lives. It's not a game. It's not a program to be shoved down somebody's throat. I can't cuss you out and I can't put you down. You know, one time I faced prison, so if somebody commits a crime, I say, don't worry about it, you know. And uh, uh, I don't sit in judgment of people. And God has given me the goofiest damn people in the world to sponsor. And the reason I got them people is because my sponsor said that I was goofy. You know, I ranted and raved one time about a person that came into my house and just complained and complained and complained and complained. And I said, Marge, I said, when do they get done complaining? She said, we listened to your crap for three years. She said, they're no. You've got two and a half more years to go. <laughs> and at one time I walked into the house and I said, I can't stay married to Ruth and stay sober because she's intolerable. Marge said, how long were you married drunk? 29 years. How long have you been sober? Six months. 
She said she has 28 and a half years to straighten out, and if she's not straight by then, I'll give you permission to divorce her. And am I glad I bought the time. I think that, oh, I forgot to thank the committee. Uh, in order to get me down here, they had to sniff Elmer's glue. Uh, and uh, I had a beautiful fruit basket from somebody. I think the people here are delightful. Uh, I think that the best advice you'll ever get at an AA meeting is don't take that first drink. And, you know, we hear that so many times. It's like, you know, water off a duck's back. And, and the truth of it is, uh, for you who are new and might not understand that, don't drink between meetings. And uh, I think the kindest thing you ever hear in these groups are come back. You know, I came to my first Ashland Thursday night group and the guy said, come back. And I said, my God, I've got a social life again. <laughs> you know, nobody wanted me back. And I said, these, I, these people have got a, you know, they've got a, just a technique for recognizing talent. And, uh, <laughs> but please come back and remember that we're not here because we think you'll drink. We're here because we love you. And if you continue to come back, we can love you until a miracle happens. I think the truest thing I've ever heard at one of these meetings is it gets better. I remember leaving the Ashland Thursday night group and all I could afford was canvas shoes and in Ohio snow leaks through canvas shoes. And I had a family that hated me. Life was intolerable and the slush was leaking through my wet feet. And Tubby Zinke says, keep coming back, Art, it gets better. Now I hung my head the way new people hang their head because nothing is ever going to get better. And I thought to myself, what does that old man know? It'll never get any better. And I was glad that he lived long enough that I was able to tell him that story and tell him, yeah, Tubby, you were right. And I appreciate your asking me down here, and I've got to tell you this, the highest compliment that you can pay anybody or anything is to tell them you love them. I love you folks. I love AA. I hope you love AA too. Thank you.